Hello and welcome to Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today I'm speaking with David Flanagan, better known as Raw Code. David is a senior developer advocate at Equinix Metal. Welcome. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, so nice to have you there. I'm just going to be transparent. We had a failed first attempt at recording <laughs> the intro, so here we are. We're going to be repeating a bunch of stuff that we just already said, but but I wanted to thank you. You are one of the patrons who support the podcast, and I really appreciate you signing up to do that. Not anymore. I've canceled it. Oh, no. <laughs> you did that while you were offline for a When second. you made me restart, I was like, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. Oh, no. No, no. Like, it's the least I could do because I, I really do appreciate how much effort you put into this. I know it's not easy. It's difficult and challenging. And you do this in your spare time. Thank you. It's uh, Like I said, it's the least I can do. Thanks so much. I really appreciate getting to know you too. I'm such a big fan of your content. And yeah, it's it's exciting when people, when you're into someone's work and they support you as well. It's a good feeling. So um, for those of you who are listening, I will uh, put a link in the show notes to the Patreon in case you would like to check that out. Okay. So um, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started with computing and ended up in this Kubernetes community? Okay. So, uh, I was terrible at computers all through school. I tried doing computing in high school. I tried doing computing in college. I tried doing computing in university and dropped out all of them. Um, I just, it just didn't really work for me. And I've never really understand why. I think my learning methods are, are different from maybe the education system. I'm very much a hacker mentality, whereas I, I really just need to go and kick the tires on something and break it apart. And that's not the way the education system works. And I spent too much time on a computer in my spare time too. You know, I wasn't, I'm very introverted. In fact, I still am. I was going to say I'm an introverted child, but I'm an introverted adult too. <laughs> I don't. I never really went when I played football or sports or go to high school dances or, or anything like that. I was much more comfortable just behind a computer screen. So the, the, the first way that I got into computers is my, my, my parents got me a computer and there was these telnet talkers and you could go onto them and type any name that you wanted. I, for like the first four years of my life online was known as Giovanni. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was a, a footballer that I liked. I didn't like playing it, but I did enjoy watching it in my, my younger days. So I, I picked Giovanni and I could just be that person and I could talk to people easily, which is not something I can do in real life. Even today, even doing this is slightly intimidating, but your calm presence will keep me going okay. But yeah, it's just been a challenging. Online was easier for me. And it was through these telemetry talker systems and curiosity that I was like, I want to change this. I want to be able to have my name in color or I want to be able, I want this feature from the thing. And open source was a thing in the late nineties still. We had fresh meat and SourceForge and all these other things. So um, there was a system called U2 and the code is still online. It makes me laugh today looking at it, but I downloaded the code and started learning C and, and hacking on it until I made this Twilnet talker do the thing I wanted it to do and submitted a patch and it got accepted and, and you know, I squealed like a, a child and I was so excited. and. That was the rabbit hole. I just started experimenting with more code and more programming and looking at other languages and, and decided this is, I want a career to do this. And I didn't have any formal education, so I was just sending off CVs to any company in Scotland that would have me. And I, I got really lucky in that web development in the late 90s, early 2000s was a hard skill to find people for because the web was so new. 
and I got a company that, that took a chance on me and I, I worked there for five years and again really lucky experience and that I joined a, a small development team they didn't have operations they didn't have support engineers they didn't have customer engineers they were just four people trying to build a product that was used by tens of thousands of companies in the UK. So I was responsible for all the code that I wrote, getting it into production, and that led me into the DevOps path where I started playing with tools like, like Puppet for remote configuration management. Mm -hmm. We had servers up and down the country at racetracks. And when something went wrong, I had to jump in the car and drive to the racetrack and try and fix it on site, which was not fun at 2 a.m. in the morning driving down to England. But that's when I was like, okay, we have a problem, is that we need to be able to manage this machine remotely. So we want to put SSH on it, but we have to manage that configuration. We don't, nothing worse than phoning someone at a racetrack and going, can you SSH or log onto this machine or this terminal and install this package? And then that allows me to get onto it? No, of course not. Um, so I, it just led me down the devil's path, playing with Puppet, and then getting frustrated with that, playing with Chef, getting frustrated with that. Many years later, we're lucky now to have Ansible and Solstack and all these other tools. But it just, yeah, curiosity was the primary driver. And um, did well in my career. Uh, ended up leading development at a media company. Uh, our product was Metal Hammer Magazine, Classic Rock Magazine. We had all these massive online websites. Uh, we had radio stations. And one wow. of the biggest challenges we had in that organization was how do we scale our website when big news breaks? And we had a doomsday scenario. The doomsday scenario was, what if Lemmy were to die? And it happened. We had to live through that. We had to scale our website. And very sad day. I was a Motorhead fan, so it had doubly hard. But we were scaling VMs on AWS. We had done the whole cloud migration thing. We were, that was supposed to be the dream. AWS is infinite scale. But what they don't tell you is there's still so much more you have to do on top of that to get to that infinite oh, scale. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, the resource limits. There's just all sorts it's, of stuff. Yeah. Know? Because we were using uh, SaltStack, it was at the time, like the VM would come online and then SaltStack would bootstrap through user data, but then it would need to speak to the, the SaltStack system, pull down the states, run the states, get the container images pulled, run the container images. It took five or six minutes and that was per host. And then you've got the auto-scaling groups, which only go up X amount of time based on what you need. Then the right. kicker, do you know that elastic load balancers on AWS have a hard limit on the scale and you have to call them to get it removed? Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> All right. There's there's a bunch of those hidden resource limits that you don't know about as an end user necessarily. And often people don't find out about them until they're in that sort of situation where they really need to scale and they suddenly can't. And yeah. I'm, under, I'm under the impression that AWS has gotten a lot better at handling <laughs> those things that you can message them now and they'll, they'll resolve it pretty quickly. But it's tough when you've got something to get done and you can't yeah. because you've run into this sort of arbitrary limit that there definitely this was what 2013 2014 around that time anyway yeah. so we had our auto scaling group was doing its thing it was slow but we were getting nodes i think we had 30 40 different vms online the cpu usage was at 20 percent. i'm like why is the traffic not working and it was the elb and i've never trusted amazon since but we our challenge there was we wanted to remove that salt stack step to bootstrap in the we wanted to speed it all up. And containers were the technology then that were just breaking through, that were changing that dynamic of where, okay, I, I just need to install Docker on a host, pull the image and run it. I don't need to do anything else. So we started adopting containers really early, Docker 0 0.4, 0 0.5, whatever it was. Um, really tough back then. Didn't even have a Docker file in the first version. Um, so we were still building tarballs. But wow. That <laughs> that, you were using Docker that early. With the Docker file, it didn't come to... 
a bit later, actually. Like, it wasn't one of the first things they shipped, but it definitely made a huge improvement. I still remember my first Docker file. It was like, it was great fun, and I was just like, oh, finally, I could do this thing. So that was great, and then it was just down the rabbit hole more, wasn't it? Like, you've got these container things, and now I want to be able to orchestrate them, and I, I don't want to use, like, Opsworks was, like, a big tool back then, and AWS, I think, started pushing ECS, and... Kubernetes was this little contender coming out and Mesos and Marathon. Actually, I spent too much time playing with Mesos and Marathon, got completely enamored with it. I don't even remember why I went back to Kubernetes at that point, <laughs> but something just drew me to it. And I've been working with Kubernetes now for, for about five years and it's, it's been fun to say the yeah. least. It's definitely, it's such a fast moving project, um, but it really does make people's lives easier these days, I think. It's really interesting, the Mesos thing, because I think about that time period a lot. And there was a time where you legit could look at Mesos and Kubernetes and be like, Mesos, oh, yeah. <laughs> hands down, is the way to go. And that just changed so much. Yeah, sometimes I think we made the wrong decision. I think it's Betamax all over again. <laughs> and Mesos just had so much going for it and Marathon running on top of it. And uh, I can't remember what the, the job schedule it was, but there was all these different components that just worked really well with a nice UI and then... There was Kubernetes where I had to YAML or JSON all the things. And yeah, I, st I still don't know how Kubernetes won, but it's been a fun ride in. It's interesting to me. You mentioned Puppet and I've talked before about the fact that I worked there for a while. I was in the Puppet community as a user and then I ended up working there as an SRE. I was working on how we used Puppet internally and it was... Uh, I don't know, it, it, there was this period of time where people were like, oh, containers are here now and Kubernetes and all these things, and we don't need configuration management anymore. And then you end up with a billion YAML files everywhere. Yeah, definitely. It's funny how things work out, right? When you look at it, you're like, I don't understand how we got from A to B there when there was like a nicer path, but th it's, things are the way they are. And I don't know, like, I remember my time with Puppet quite fondly. It solved so many problems. There was nothing like that when it came out, and that was great. I literally had it running in every race course, provisioning my software. Fantastic. And it, I think it probably sparked my interest in other languages. I think the DSL for Puppet was so Ruby-like and so foreign to me as a C developer that I was like, oh, like, what is this thing? And then I started playing with a bit of Ruby and Python and just started going, ooh, with all this shiny technology out there. Like, I need to go play with more of this. I was writing tests for Puppet Code, and so I actually wrote more well, RSpec than I wrote Ruby <laughs> back in the day, which is backwards. But, um, you know, I think to me the, the issue with Puppet and Chef was more not the tools themselves, but the fact that they didn't change rapidly enough with what was going on. Puppet specifically was very much modeled on managing static infrastructures, and that was suddenly not a thing anymore. Yeah, dynamic like, inventories were coming up hot and fast and yeah. people need to, like the software had to adapt to work with that. I think that's why Ansible was just so popular. It worked really well. SaltStack as well, their ability for the agent, the, the communication method of SaltStack still amazes me. I think it's ingenious the way that you just have the, the SaltStack master run 0MQ and all the minions subscribe to it. And the master only ever has to write messages to the 0MQ and then the agent picks it up and puts their response back on it. Like, it's just such a cool way to do it. You tweeted the other day that you wanted to come on some podcasts and talk about your show Clustered. And that's kind of how we got to this point where we're meeting up today. I'm a 
big fan of the show. I've seen several episodes. I can't always hang into the end because sometimes they go on for a while, but I've watched like, <laughs> yeah, I've watched like the first 30, 45 minutes of quite a lot of them. I also have ADHD. And so sometimes like sitting still and watching something for a few hours is more than I could do. But it's a fascinating show for the listeners who might not have seen it. Can you just describe what Clustered is about? Yes. Definitely. And thank you for taking pity on my tweet and having me on to talk about it. <laughs> so Clustered is, I had this, this idea, I just wanted to make learning material that was fun. And I, I didn't understand why this didn't exist yet. And I thought we've got so many people trying to adopt Kubernetes. And you know, you'll be like me, right? We, we speak to so many developers in the community and we hear all their challenges and we want to do more to help them. But you know, there's only so many blog posts you can write or so many links to documentation you can give. And I was like, there has to be a more engaging way that people can learn this stuff that's not just go RTFM. And I was like, I'm all right at fixing broken Kubernetes clusters. And I know a few other people that are all right at fixing broken Kubernetes clusters. Like, would I do this on a stage at a conference? And I started thinking about that. And then COVID happened and there were no conferences. And the idea disappeared for a long time. And then, uh, and then as I started building up my YouTube channel and my live streams, I was like, I could do this on a live stream. Like, you know, like live coding is painful, but I'm sure I can maybe make this work. Um, so I just reached out to a few people. And I'm like, if I give you a Kubernetes cluster, can you break it for me? And surprisingly, at the start, people said yes. And my initial idea seems absolutely ridiculous now. But my plan was to go through 10 broken Kubernetes clusters on a one-hour stream. And what, oh, wow. <laughs> and what I've now worked is that actually it doesn't matter how superficial or trivial the break on a Kubernetes cluster is, is that being able to pinpoint what is wrong through the symptoms actually takes much more time than fixing the cluster itself. And uh, sometimes you can just get on a cluster and it'll take you 30 minutes just to get the lay of the land and work out what's broken and fix it. So yeah, 10 in an hour was, was, was never going to happen. But it did get me to try the idea. My first episode was back in January of this year with Waleed Shari. Waleed has some of the best GitHub repositories for materials for learning CKA, CKAD and CKS. I'll give you a link for that if you want to put them in the show notes, but I recommend yeah, them to please. everybody. They're just so, so good. But I spoke to Waleed and I was like, you want to do this thing with me? We're going to get some broken clusters and we're going to go on a stream and we're going to do our best to fix it. And surprisingly, well, he'd said yes. So <laughs> there we are. We go live and I'm like, all right, uh, we have two clusters and we tried to use Tmux and it was so painful because nobody ever remembers the Tmux shortcuts. And we're trying to like split panes and, and type into shared buffers. And eventually we did fix two broken clusters. It was so much fun. I was actually surprised um, just because... It turned out that what was important wasn't the breaks. Like, they're the entertainment part. Like, seeing how people demolish these things, and they've been getting creative. Like, we can talk about some of yeah, the breaks. Yeah. This is not a one-line change in the config file anymore, although some of them started off that way. We are talking about kernel hackers going to town on the entire machine to stop you getting anywhere near the cluster. But what, what turned out to be more interesting was the way that people communicate with each other during the, the paging process and the way that they handle the debugging. Like some of the highlights are just, oh, there's a cool alias that I never thought of, or there's a cool uh, keyboard shortcut that I never thought of, or people who just bring on their own little tools. Like I remember the first time someone brought on K9s and used that, and I was like, what, what's this thing? And just seeing the way that people 
and break down the problems and try to work out what's going on, I found really exciting. And having the opportunity to share that with a broader audience so that we can all learn this stuff together. I couldn't be prouder of the work of Clustered. That's fantastic. Yeah, big shout out to Waleed. He's also been a supporter of the podcast. He's been on several of the episodes asking listener questions <laughs> and, and all kinds of stuff. And I've definitely seen him in the clustered chat quite a bit too. I think that it just seems terrifying to me. <laughs> like the idea of, you mentioned live coding and live coding is terrifying to me, but this seems like just even more terrifying, right? Because somebody else has specifically like sabotaged this thing and you have no idea what they've done. Yes, it was terrifying. Um, and there's the, it's weird, right? Like you really get this competitive arch when you're on it because you really want to fix this thing. But at the same time, people have gone out of their way to ensure that you can't. So yeah, there is a lot of, it's not fear. It's the fear of the unknown because you have no idea what you're walking into. Um, right, right. And live coding is difficult. And, you know, I used to think that people are going to think, I don't know what I'm doing if I can't remember this command or... Like if I have to Google something, that's just going to be so embarrassing. But I, I, I find that I've actually got a, now a unique opportunity where we can set some new norms. In my day job, I do Google stuff and I do forget commands. Why am I worried yeah, about doing course. this on a stream? And I, was just, I, I think I just settled into it. I'm like, actually, it's now my duty to, to show people that we don't have to have all the answers and we don't know all the commands and we do Google the most ridiculous things on a day-in basis. And that's okay. And that kind of subsided the fear a little bit. Now it's just about, okay, let's have some fun. And that's what it's all about. One of my favorite examples that comes up from time to time is regex. Because I'm one of those people who, like, I'll look at a regex or write one once every five years. And so I'm never doing it enough, frequently enough for it to really stick in my head. But unless you're using it all the time, why would you ever want it to stick in your head? Exactly. I think we've all got our thing like that. Regex is definitely one of those tricky esoteric things. And even if you think you know what you're doing, when you try to actually do it, it always turns out to be wrong anyway. And then there's different flavors and variations of regex. Yeah, I get yeah. it. I can't stand it. <laughs> So you mentioned that, that you've learned about some new tools and I've seen this happen. I've been watching some of the streams where you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know about this thing that somebody mentions that ends up being super helpful. You mentioned canines. I wondered if there's any other examples you could think of like tools or commands or things that, that you learned about. Yeah, definitely. And I think I learn something every episode, even if it's just a shortcut or a part of the Linux system that I've never worked with before. But as far as tools, I discovered Teleport through this. And now I run it, I think, on every cluster. It just allows us to have a shared terminal um, where you and I can both be typing at the same time if we wanted to uh, into a machine and trying to work out what's going on. So Teleport's cool. Canines is awesome. I love yeah. seeing people use that now. It just makes that whole dance of cube control get, delete, get logs, delete, and then edit. It just makes all of that a lot more fluid, a lot easier. And definitely a really cool tool. But I think the most surreal one was when Chris Nova was on my show with Thomas Stromberg. So mm -hmm. Chris Nova, I think we all know. He's a, a kernel hacker in security and to eBPF. I think currently at Twilio. And Thomas Stromberg is one of the maintainers of the Minikube project yeah yeah and um, so putting them two onto an episode together i was like i just know this is going to be great because they're they're both got so much in-depth knowledge about kubernetes they were both in the kubernetes scene when i was just learning it like they were super early and uh yeah it turned out to be an almost magical episode so you know, 
Chris Nova went to town on this cluster, live streamed it. I had to resist watching it to know what was going to happen. But we log on to the system and Thomas was like, all right, I'm just going to gather some facts. I was like, okay, we've not seen someone do that before. Typically we try and run cube control get nodes, but yeah, you, you do it your way. And he installed this tool called SlothKit. Have you heard of SlothKit? I don't think I have. <laughs> so it turns out that during Thomas's tenure at Google, I think Thomas was there 10 years or something, you know, seen, seen everything at Google almost, um, but had worked on a number of cybersecurity and forensic analysis tasks on machines when there was a suspected break-in or breach or security incident. Right. And SlothKit is a tool that can analyze the file system and basically give you a snapshot of that everything that's changed within a certain time window. So Thomas oh, wow. jumps onto this machine, installs SlothKit. I'm like, I have no idea what this is. Runs a command, and the next thing I know, he's got a directory with diff and patch files for everything that happened in the last 24 hours. <laughs> and he went, I'm just going to leave them there in case I need them. And then went on to debug the cluster normally. And I was just so surreal because, you, one, I had no idea that tool existed. I had no idea that even the technology was possible based on the file system. And just poked at the cluster, worked out what was wrong, used the sloth kit patch files as a reference. I mean, it still took 50 minutes, I think, to fix the cluster. It was not a quick fix. There's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, wow. But just really cool seeing that background of A, working at Google, B, working on forensics analysis of compromised machines and bringing yeah. that to a Kubernetes situation where you want to try and work out what went wrong. Um, and that was really cool. Very, very cool, actually. <laughs> That's super interesting. I didn't know about that either. Of course, I know about things like audit logs, but that's such a different thing to actually be diffing the file system. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the thing, right, is that Thomas knew he was on the episode with Chris, and we all know Chris's background. Chris had patched, had used something called LD Preload to swap out one of the functions in glibc so that even if you wanted to do ls on a directory, you wouldn't see the hidden files. Like, completely went to town to make this thing hidden within the cluster but there are tools and methods to get around that too and it, that it, you know what it just wouldn't have worked if it wasn't for those two and it was complete serendipity that those two happened to be on that stream because we learned a lot from chris and the breaks and the way that she, the way that she tackled the cluster and all of that but then equally we learned a lot on the fixing side and i think that's but you know, the best episodes are the ones where we have fun with the break, we enjoy it, we, we get a giggle, we laugh, but at the same time, we learn a lot in the, the debugging and processing and fixing phase. So. Yeah. I'll have to put a link in the show notes to that episode specifically, and then people can find your um, the rest of your YouTube videos. Besides doing cluster, you do some other things, but... Oh, I wanted to ask you, I usually save listener questions at the end, until the end of the the show, but there were some questions specifically about Cluster that someone asked, so I thought that we would tackle those now. It's, uh, I work with Homer on Twitter, asked several, but I'm just going to tackle a couple of these. What are your favorite and least favorite breaks that you've seen so far? Okay, least favorite is easy. The Unicode break. He, he predicted you were going to say that. <laughs> Uh, he predicted right. I used to organize Cloud Native Glasgow and Docker Glasgow, and through my relationship there, worked in, and met someone called Guy Templeton, who is a container engineer at Skyscanner in Glasgow. And uh, I reached out to Guy and I was like, do you want to come on and join me? He's also the co-chair of SecOps Scaling, so he knows he's Kubernetes. 
And I thought he was going to give me some really cool, intricate auto-scaling bug or something, a resource management bug. And I was like, come on and do clusters with me. So he, he got a cluster, he broke it, and we're working through it. We're fixing things left, right, and center. And there's just one thing that's not working. And it's my, my application can't speak to the backend database. There's something wrong with the DNS discovery and the cluster. So I'm sitting with two terminals open, looking at the core DNS config on this side. I'm looking at as example core DNS config on this side, and I don't see any differences. And I'm going up and down and looking and scanning, and I have no idea what's going on. And it turned out that guy had just found an E that looks like an E but isn't an E. <laughs> so my core DNS was running service discovery for Kubernetes.cluster.local or wherever it was, but with one of those letters changed. And I'm still, he, he told me in the chat, this is what I've done. And I'm looking at them and I still don't see the difference. <laughs> Uh, and there's been a blanket rule ever since that we just, just there's no Unicode things here. And I think it's to be honest, it's a good example of some of the weirder breaks on cluster. Like we do want them to be production and real worldy so that people can learn a lot of tools, but we still get a yeah. lot of fun and enjoyment from the absolutely absurd. And I don't know where that one lies because there is the potential to typo, but whether you would typo a similar, I, I don't know. But that was the most frustrating one. I, th I think it's the first time I've ever audibly yelped on my stream when he told me and I actually seen the letter change. I've just flashed back to, um, I worked at an internet provider in the late nineties and we had the guy who was our host master who maintained all the DNS records use this editor called Joe. And he would once in a while, like fat figure something and embed hidden control characters in the file that would just break everything. But like from that point on, so like the first 40% of the DNS records would load and then the rest wouldn't. And it was just such a nightmare. Oh my yeah. gosh. Remember when things used to be easier and there used to be backup files with like little tildes and names on them and stuff and you could just swap them back? We don't do that anymore. I think we're missing a trick here. It's the files. Yeah. And I would have .bak david1, david2, david3, david4056. <laughs> like I never deleted those things. So. And that was my PDF dot final. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's what? my least favorite break. That one was so frustrating. And even when you knew it was there, it was really hard to work it out. Um, and I've gotten a habit now of whenever I open files of searching for the pattern I expect to see, and if it doesn't show up, then I suspect Unicode. But uh, yeah, that was my least favorite. Um, what about favorites? So there have been quite a few interesting ones. So I'm not going to pick one person in particular, but a few people have taken the same route. In fact, I'll, I'm going to go with two because one of them is a funny story about Kubernetes and another one is a funny story about the efforts people go through to break this. So the, the first one is a good thing about Kubernetes. Jason Deterus actually deleted the kubelet binary on the machine and stuck an old kubelet in, which seems really harmless. Now, it turns out that Jason went back a couple of versions and nothing broke. In fact, he actually had to roll back from Kubernetes 1.19 or 120 back to Kubernetes 1.3 before the kubelet would actually break the system. And debugging that was a pain because to me, it looked like the kubelet existed. I had a binary I could run as help. It all looked normal. I didn't run kubelet version because I just had, I just didn't pop into my head that someone would replace the binary with a really old version. <laughs> really painful to debug. Looking at the logs, nothing of course made sense because the kubelet is trying to be a kubelet and it just doesn't understand the API server, it's fallen over. 
I went down the path of trying to debug our back and roles and everything. I had no idea what I was doing. So that was a that was a fun one. And I, I just like how far back he had to go to actually get the kubelet to break the system, which I think is a testament to just how great everyone working on that project is. Now, the other one is people, when they don't replace the kubelet with a really old kubelet, people have started patching the kubelet, like literally forking the kubelet and modifying the code to return whatever they want. Oh, wow. Which is really difficult to debug because 99% of that kubelet is being a kubelet and then there's this little tiny 1% that's being a little devil child. And you're trying, trying to work out what is going on in that system. People have done this with the API server too. 99% of the API server calls all do the right thing. But if you try and upgrade your application, it just that It just breaks. And the, wow. And even people replacing kube control on all of the machines. So I can't even run my commands. It looks normal. But they literally just have it outputting the same thing, which looks normal again. And I'm like, I'm making changes and I don't see them in the system. Um, so yeah, I think those ones are great just because it <laughs> takes you so long to work out what's going on. You can't help but smile when you work it out. Yeah, replacing the binary is pretty cruel. Very sneaky, very sneaky. What kinds of things have you learned about troubleshooting Kubernetes from, from being on the show? Yes, that's a great question. Really just, Kubernetes is really difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, we think of it as a system for running distributed applications, but Kubernetes itself is more distributed than I think we give it credit for or even realize most of the time. Uh, the API server running might mean that you've got half a working system, but the fact that it has to speak to a scheduler, it has to speak to the controller managers, um, something you don't realize. Like I spent a lot of the last, what is this, August? Eight months going through the static pod manifest for the control plane. And there are a lot of flags in there. And um, being able to disable the pod controller with dash pod controller, I find hilarious every single time. And um, why do we, like, why is that option there? Why can we disable the pod controller? <laughs> and. Uh, all the different port maps. You can see another thing is you can see the legacy and the history of the project as it's changed as well. There are so many parameters in the static pod configurations for the API server and the kubelet yeah. that are just there that don't really do anything anymore, but kind of have to be there, like setting the insecure port number to zero and a few other things like this that must be really confusing for people that are new to the project because I, I see myself doing it where I'm going into the config and I know something's broken and I'm trying to work out what it is and they're all just red herrings. They're all things that look suspicious that are completely harmless. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and being able to navigate that and understand that has just been a complete chore of trial and error and fire, lots of fire. So yeah, I can see how difficult this project is for people to pick up and because it's difficult for me as a five or six year person in it now. So. Yeah. I, um, I'm under the impression that at this point, there's a high reluctance to introduce breaking changes. So I wonder if any of that is related to the fact that there's <laughs> this old legacy, not, not my favorite word, but the fact that there's this old stuff in there that doesn't necessarily fit with, with what people are doing now, but people are maybe reticent to, to pull it out at the same time. Yeah. Definitely. I think that's definitely a big problem. I, I don't like using the word legacy either, but I think there's a, a certain application of that here that is 100% correct. And I think what we also need to understand is that Kubernetes historically has not been an entirely secure <laughs> um, 
system. Yeah, that's the word. There's not been an entirely secure system. And we've seen a lot of effort by a lot of people over the last two years alone to fix that. And that is causing a lot of these flags to be lying around in config files, like the insecure ports. Like, you know, did you know that the Kubelet used to run an API that anyone could talk to and run containers in your system? It was just there. That was yeah. bound to a public IPv4 address on all your machines. But they are all getting better. It leaves both the little funny looking flags in your config files and it can trip you up. But I think I've just, to go back to your question, the thing I've learned is that this just takes a lot of patience. There are a lot of moving components and that really just use a managed service. <laughs> <laughs> just use JKE, just use EKS. If you've got a need for bare metal, and I'm supposed to advocate for bare metal, and bare metal is awesome, but you got to be prepared for all the learnings along the way. Yeah, agreed. I mean, there's a there's a cost. I think with most decisions like that, whether to use a managed Kubernetes or to run your own, it's just all about trade-offs, right? And you're just going to need a level of expertise to run it on bare metal that you don't necessarily need to use a managed service. Exactly. Yeah, if, if you need complete fixability in the way that your system is configured and you want to run custom schedulers or you want to use custom container runtimes, go to bare metal route and you're going to have to invest in people that can get this deep understanding. And I hope Clustered helps all these people that are in this position. But yeah, it might just be easier to use JKE. In fact, people always ask me on Twitter, like, why are these bare metal clusters? Why don't you just use JKE? Wouldn't it be a lot easier? And the, the, the brakes have just gotten too, too sophisticated, too complicated, all of they're just too intricate now that you couldn't, we don't always, in fact, it's rare that we see breaks that are purely on the Kubernetes API surface. Um, a lot of right. breaking Kubernetes comes from the underlying host. And it seems like the point of those managed services too is to fence off things so you can't break them. Yeah, they're supposed to be uh, childproof and that you can't make any silly mistakes <laughs> and they're always going to keep running and it doesn't matter what silly things you're throwing at the API, it's going to try and keep your system online. Whereas in bare metal, you can literally do anything you want. So yeah. I work with Homer had another question, which is where do you think most people's biggest diagnostic weaknesses are? As in what part of a cluster that if broken, do you think would be the most difficult for people to solve? SCD, done, next question. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, there's probably two. SCD, I've seen Every single episode, if someone breaks etcd, we're all straight to the docs. Even just connecting to etcd in a Kubernetes, or at least in a kubeadm etcd configured environment, right? you have to enable the etcd v3 API, you have to point it to all the different keys and the peer keys, and then eventually you can run an etcd control command. And even when you can run an etcd control command, you, like, how often do you have to do that? Like, even trying to remember how to get the health of an etcd cluster is, is really painful. Um, in fact, the simplest break in the world was by Team Talos against Team Red Hat. And Team Red Hat, it took them the whole episode just to even work out what was going on. And I was right there with them. I was just as perplexed. And it turned out all Team Talos had done was say, etcd control, member add, fake IP address. That was it. But that one simple change to moved etcd from being in a single worker mode to a distributed etcd where it could never ever get a quorum and that node never came online and there was no way to fix oh, it or there was a way to fix wow. it but it was extremely complicated and we ended up just restoring etcd from a backup before the etcd command was added the fake member was added because removing the member was also extremely complicated and it's amazing that one change took a team of really smart <laughs> engineers an hour 
even just to identify what had happened. That is yeah. how, uh, I think that's just how separated we are from SED because of managed services. Um, I'm sure there are people that manage SED and bare metal environments that are working with it day in, day out that, sure, child's play, but I think for most people, um, yeah. SED is the biggest, oh, please don't be SED, please don't be SED. That's super interesting. I mean, I know there are people who use etcd for other things besides Kubernetes too, and so those folks probably know quite a lot more about it if they're using it to, you know, as a data store for their applications or other things like that. Oh yeah, totally. But it, it's familiarity. If you don't work with these technologies day in day out, you know, when you work with Kubernetes, you've already got so much you need to learn and work with to deploy your application. That to a certain point, we forget etcd is there. At least we don't even acknowledge it. We're too yeah. busy thinking about the API server and schedulers and the container runtime and the CNI implementation and our service meshes that we've got running on it and then certificate <laughs> management. And then we've got all of our admission controllers and our GitHub controllers and there's this little etcd component. It's, this, it's like, you know, in Star Wars where they've got that little hole in the ship. That's the etcd. <laughs> it's just sitting there waiting for someone to target it. And then the whole thing, it, that's just how it feels to me. So it's... Yeah, that's the one thing that I think most people are like, please don't be etcd. It used to be cert. Oh, yeah. But now with QBDM, you just do QBDM, renew certs all, and it's just whoop, done. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think we fear certs anymore. And then there's, there's one more that I'll mention, because it's, it's yeah. rising in prominence now. I see a lot more people trying to bring this into cluster, and I'm terrified of it, is <laughs> eBPF. Because... EPPF is super powerful. It can block syscalls. It can break networking. It can do that. What I haven't seen yet is any debugging tool, and please somebody go write this, but any debugging tool that can just give me a list of K probes in the system so I know that eBPF is running something, which might be difficult with Cilium on my cluster, of course, but it's really, right now, there's no way to identify if someone has run some eBPF code in your system. If there is, someone please tell me how to do it because more people are using it and I'm getting very scared. Duffy Cooley, are you listening? <laughs> yes, Duffy. <laughs> we need your help. <laughs> you, you were talking a little bit about the challenges to you know, a new person coming into Kubernetes. I'm wondering if there's other advice you might have for someone in that position who's... Because they... There's a lot of past history at this point, right? There's a lot that's happened. And for folks who've been in the community for a number of years, I think they they may not recognize what the experience is like for somebody who walks in today at day one. So advice for people that are going to be operating Kubernetes. Does I understand that question, right? Yeah, yeah. Pick up a drinking habit, probably would be a good start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, be, you're going to have to be patient. Even when you start to understand this system, even when you start to understand the quirks, and if you start to get a gut feel for it, um, I've noticed that with more recent clusters, that the more breaks I've seen now, like we're on episode 24, over 40-something broken clusters. Wow. I'm now starting to speak Kubernetes. Is that a thing? I don't know. I can see things that happen, and immediately I'm like, okay, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And it just comes from experience. And I, I generally believe the cluster is a great way to get that experience. I'm learning these things by watching it and sometimes partaking. So I would encourage anyone new to operate in Kubernetes clusters to give cluster the chance. And Because what you're going to see is, is experts from all around our community showing how they would debug a problem. But yeah, you, as patience and experience. I think that's true for probably most things in technology. I wish I was bringing something new to the table here. That's like, okay. But, but patience and experience and just persistence are the key to all of this. 
I feel like the certifications could potentially be helpful too. Like I think that the things that you learn to be able to pass the CKA are, are things that would probably help somebody quite a bit. Yeah, the certifications, the CKA is a, a great exam and the, the course materials for that. And while each repository, I can't give that enough shout outs. It just has so much material in there. And even Kelsey Hightower's Kubernetes the Hardware is still being updated. And that walks you through manually building your own Kubernetes cluster. Uh, and it's, again, the more times you do that, the, m the more mistakes you make every time you do it, uh, you're just going to learn and start picking all this stuff up. Yeah. So you're you're doing some other things besides Clustered as well. You have Raw Code Live, where you have a lot of folks on. I've been a guest on there and really enjoyed it. You have folks on there. It seems like they're mainly people from projects coming on to talk about what they're working on. Yeah. So it's the most selfish thing I have ever done in my entire life. But remember I said I was curious? Yeah. I really want to play with all of these technologies. And I've managed somehow to convince you and many other people to come on and sit down and literally guide me through your technology. And I say that as a joke. Of course, I hopefully I'm not selfish. I'm just curious. But, you know, we have now a format that I think works really well. Uh, and that I get to play the idiot, which I'm really good at, and sit there <laughs> with my terminal open and have awesome people like yourself that just have all of this knowledge and experience and sit down and really just have a conversation and talk about why this technology is fun and exciting yeah. and interesting. And at the same time, just run through the getting started guide. And even it's the commentary of, it's, you know, the getting started guide, anyone can do it in their own time. But that component with the, the commentary from yourself and others, I think such adds so much context and value to the demo that it just elevates it somehow. I just find them super interesting and people are really passionate about their projects as well and we don't get that through yeah. documentation but you know when you sit down and people are saying this is why it is this way this is why we built it this way this is why we made this decision all of that just helps paint this big complete picture and anyone that's interested in this technology can hopefully come and watch these episodes and absorb that passion and see how to get started and hopefully spark their curiosity to go and play with it from it and i just yeah again it's, it's I just love that I get to sit and do this a couple of times a week and just see all these cool techs. When's the last time you looked at the cloud native landscape? I mean, oh, it's probably three gosh, times yeah. the size since then. Uh, and that's assuming you looked at it earlier today. So it's good. Yeah, my, my guess is that you're one of the people out there who probably has <laughs> exposure to the widest amount of tools just because of all the, the different kinds of streaming that you've done. Yeah, I, I just think it's, it's so difficult these days. The hardest challenge is that of choice. Like I, I feel yeah. it in the cloud native communities as we're building all these distributed systems and with microservices and we're running on Kubernetes is that choice is eventually a, a bad thing. We get fatigue from making all of these decisions. Yeah. Like if you have to sit down and say, oh, what service mesh are we going to use? Oh, it looks like people are using SDO. Oh, but I heard people say I think our D is really good. Oh, there's also Blue. Oh, and then there's Ambassador. And these are all great products and they're all doing something very similar. And at the end of the day, we just have there's only so many decisions we can make in a day and um, I hope that my show gives people an opportunity to ease that burden a little bit and my dog's saying hello now if you can hear <laughs> hello what is your dog's name Daisy it's a little Bichon Frise ah uh, that's so cute you also have a show now on cloud native TV I do I don't know how I have the time for all this, I've got to say. But I've been working with a wonderful team at the CNCF and the community. 
know, Dan Pop is the co-producer and really driving this project, and he's done a yeah. phenomenal job with that. I co-chair this Cloud Native TV with Cat Claus Group, and the three of us are really just trying to make sure that we're getting more material out there to help people and just deal with all this. Like I said, Cloud Native is really, really hard. Yeah. Um, my my show is trying to tackle a, a frustration that again I have personally, and that is I, I want to be able to contribute more code to these projects. But these projects are all so mature, and they've got so many people working on them. They're often backed by relatively large organizations, and it can be very intimidating for people that want to come and get that first pull request in. Uh, and that's why LG, LGTM is is the name of the show, and the idea is to just remove that barrier to entry so that people can come and see okay here's the project here's the code walkthrough and then we make a live feature request or a bug fix and we open a pull request and we test the application and we just want to make it paint by numbers we want anyone to be able to come along and say i want to contribute to linkerd well cool there's a nice 50 minute video with one of the maintainers literally cloning the project, making a change, pushing it, and trying to share as much knowledge as they have about the way the the rules are, like slash commands in a pull request. I don't know if you've ever tried to contribute to Kubernetes, but even just trying to work out, should I should I LGTM, even though I'm not a maintainer, or should I okay to test, or can I request a test, or who do I assign it to? And like, it's just, you can be overwhelmed so, so quickly, and LGTM just wants to help people that want to contribute to these projects make that first contribution. That's fantastic. Yeah, the pull request stuff can almost be like a foreign language if you're not <laughs> into the conventions that a specific team is using. Yeah, I think these days and on some projects, writing the code is the easy part. And then there's all <laughs> these unwritten rules and sometimes they're, they're documented, but only through process like CI or GitHub Actions or something like, you know, some projects will not accept a commit that's not formatted with semantic commit conventions or something like that. I think we can do a better job of helping people get onboarded and be familiar with these projects so that it can feel, you know, if, if we can just remove a little bit of that fear or worry from contributing and get them on their way, that's all it takes. That's fantastic. Um, what are your feelings about the community right now? Like, it feels to me like things are still rapidly expanding. I remember there was such that, that huge crowd at KubeCon San Diego. It seems like the community is growing even since then. Is that what you're seeing as well, that there's still a lot of new folks coming in? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so many, I think now that it's cloud native and Kubernetes is getting so much adoption and becoming such a staple in IT and technology um, that we're now starting to see universities and colleges have programs on teaching on containers and Kubernetes. It's becoming part of everything that's been taught as soon as they're 18 or 19 or 20 and they're starting to break into this industry, which is just bringing in even more new people. I can't remember, I don't know the specifics of what the KubeCon numbers are, but I think in Europe there was 26,000 virtual attendees and that's yeah. just growing year after year. So we're seeing the conferences get bigger and bigger. We're seeing the number of projects continue to expand and we're seeing more and more people coming into this space which is great. The more people we have here, the better. The more people that want to contribute and be involved, great. The more people that just want to sit in the sidelines and use the project, great. Like, you know, it's never a bad thing to have all of these extra people coming in. Um, and you've got wonderful podcasts like yours where you're having conversations and making it easier for people to understand who's in this space and how they can get involved. And Dan Pop has, and I've got my shows, and Cloud Native TV, and we've got Siam, and we've got Canal. 
there's just all these amazing people producing content that's again making it easier for even more people to come in yeah, it's a really great time to be in cloud native i think yeah, agreed. So impressed by that whole list of folks that you just mentioned. <laughs> They're all people that I, I think are just just really killing it. Siam is somebody who, like, I don't even know how he cranks out the amount of content that he does. You're the same way. Pop is really great. Canal as well. It's really, I don't know, I find it really inspiring to look around and see what what people are accomplishing. The hard part is just try not to measure yourself against them, right? Like... <laughs> Yes, I couldn't agree more. It can be intimidating for everyone involved, definitely. And, uh, but what I would encourage anyone listening to do is if you've ever thought about having a podcast or a live stream or producing content, go for it. There's no such thing as too much material to help people because this is really difficult. And I think we just need more content. We need more docs. We need more guides. We need more tutorials. It doesn't always have to be video, um, but we just need people to start sharing their experience I think it has to evolve from what used to be very conference-driven. Like we would just go to conferences, we stand on a stage, we try and look impressive and then yeah. publish some code or some slides. But we have to evolve it. And more, yeah, like I said, more articles, more videos, more podcasts. We just need more and more of this stuff to make it easier. Yeah, I agree completely. And it's interesting because I think sometimes people don't understand that like even the most experienced people that you can think of when you look around <laughs> in a community can get a talk rejected, right? Like it's not like everybody still always is able to do exactly what they want. And, and I think it's a huge advantage to not, not wait on other people to let you say the things that you want to say, right? Like when you can do like you're saying and hop on YouTube or hop on Twitch or start a podcast. You don't need anyone's permission to get in front of an audience at this point. Yeah, there was a really cool tweet I retweeted the other day and it said, if you're producing content to help people learn, we're not competition, we're teammates. And I think that is so true. Like we are all producing materials. Like it doesn't matter if this person is getting more views or more subscribers, we're all just trying to make this content accessible to as many people as possible. And the fact that it's there, then that's a, a complete bonus. And I lost my train of thought. <laughs> that's okay. I, I feel the same way. And that's the vibe that I've gotten from, you mentioned Pop. I've had mm. a lot of conversations with him about this stuff. And he's so supportive. Um, yes, he's he been really, really super is. supportive of this podcast and other things that I do. And I know you two hate each other, but still manage to pretend that you don't or something. Yeah. I can't even remember what side of the fence I'm on anymore, to be honest. <laughs> I remember what I was going to say. And it's like, I was, I can't remember who said it and I wish I could attribute it, attribute it to somebody. But they always said like the best engineers are the ones that say, I don't know the most. Mm, yeah. And I think, I think I saw that as well. Yeah, and I think the best people that are speaking at conferences and speaking or doing content like this are also the people that are being rejected the most and the people that are just not having content land. Like, you have to accept that there is a rough road ahead and it's going to be difficult. Um, yeah. But you're still leading your way. I think there's... Uh there's a lot of advantages to, I'm not sure if I talked about this on the podcast before, but I actually got my current job 
through the podcast, like the CTO and CEO had heard the podcast and approached me when they saw that I was looking for work. And, um, you know, you're somebody who you've done a really great job with branding. You've got this raw code persona that you have, I think, done a fantastic job of getting that name out there. And you have an employer. And from what I've heard, they're fantastic. But you know, you're not reliant on them to be able to to say what you want to say. Yeah, I guess we're, you know, we're, we're continuing to demonstrate involvement in the community. And I think that's really important for future employers, like especially an open source, I think is one of the best things that any developer can do is, is be engaged and, and contribute and build relationships because, you know, the people always come first before the technology. And I, I think that's true no matter what. And the best way is just to talk to people, have conversations, even just ask people how they are, um, especially in today's world where, you know, most of our conversations are through a browser. Like, you know, use that opportunity to say, hey, because we're all, we're all dealing with a rough 18 Yeah, for sure. Um, there were a couple other listener, listener questions from Eric um, at EB Cardi. First, which projects do you feel are addressing interesting challenges in the cloud native space? Yeah, interesting projects. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to LinkerD. I think service mesh is one of those underutilized things and it's difficult because it was so buzzwordy for a while. Uh, but I think that their approach to it, which was to make it a good developer experience first, was totally the right move. And I don't think we've seen that from Istio and other competitions. And I'm going to do something completely narcissistic and quote myself now. But <laughs> I, I said this on Twitter a couple of years ago, and I was so impressed with myself, it stuck with me. Um, but I said a good developer experience is one where a developer is successful with intuition rather than informed decisions. Oh, wow. That is really good. I know. I was really impressed with myself. <laughs> but I think it's just so true. Uh, I mean, how many times do you pick up, like Kubernetes is not a good developer experience, right? You're never going to deploy and operate a Kubernetes cluster with intuition. But the right. fact that Linkerd, you can make a lot of, you can just go with it. It just does the right thing, I think is super impressive and what we should be striving for across the entire cloud native landscape. Another project that I'm so impressed with right now is Red Panda. And I don't think anyone's ever heard of it. I've heard of it, but I don't, I'm, I'm not... It is a Kafka compatible messaging server written right. in C++ with a built-in WebAssembly runtime. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing so many people move to, well, in fact, I think we're, we're past that now. I think we've seen so many organizations now adopt Kafka as almost the status quo. But yeah, for sure. we're running it, uh, you know, it's that, a heavy JVM that requires Zookeeper. It's quite difficult to operate. And, you know, the JVM and containers is notoriously painful and you stick yeah. it on Kubernetes and it gets worse because we've got stateful workloads in Kubernetes and seeing something like Red Panda come out where you can use blob storage and your cloud provider of choice it's C++ it runs well in containers it's Kafka API compatible and one of the most impressive projects I've came across in the last few months that is super cool um, yeah I'm also uh, also really impressed with Linkerd um, I've chatted with William before and he seems great. Yeah, I mean, you deploy it with no special configuration and you get MTLS across all your services. That is the developer experience that we should be, we should be striving for. 
Um, I'll also give a shout to, you know, the folks at Ambassador are working on telepresence and the tilt dev folks and the scaffold dev folks. Um, three mm-hmm. really cool projects for, that are trying to bring a good developer experience to building your application locally but working in a remote cluster. I think that yeah. is the biggest hurdle we need to kind of get through in the next couple of years because more people adopt Kubernetes. And, and the more microservices we have, you can't run all that stuff locally in your own machine. Like you need to have this like shared environment and the tools that are making that possible, Scaffold, tele, Telepresent, I'm, I'm sure there are others, but those three I think are all doing an absolutely amazing job and I can't wait to see what new things come out of that too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, one more question from Eric. Um, is it preferred to run a database in a Kubernetes cluster or consume it as a managed service? I'm a, I'm a big advocate of running stateful workloads in Kubernetes because I think that's where we need to be. Is it yeah. as painless and frictionless as I think it should be? Definitely not. Um, if you're in a cloud provider and you've got detachable storage through EBS or anything similar across the providers, then yeah, definitely go for it. Run it in Kubernetes. Um, you're probably quite successful. Stateful sets have come a long way. Um, but if you're not in that environment, definitely not. <laughs> Just run it on a machine and take care of it. Give it hugs and cuddles every night. Tuck it in, read it a story, and hope that it never leaves you. Yeah. I'm I'm sort of uh, in the same boat on this one as I am with um, using managed clusters, which is that, you know, if your cloud provider has a good database that fits your use case, you know, just just use it. Yeah, I think databases are one of those things that if as an organization, if you're going to pay for something, pay for a managed database. Use a SaaS product, uh, whatever it is. Find it, pick the database you like and just give them some money, support that business um, <laughs> and remove a whole bunch of headaches. Now, you can do it on Kubernetes. It's getting easier. But yeah, I, yeah. I'd probably lead to just, here's some money. MongoDB, Postgres, Cockroach, whatever one it is, uh, please make my life easier. Yeah, agreed. Um, well, it's been super fun chatting with you, David. I'm, I'm really glad you uh, tweeted that thing the other day and, and we uh, got this scheduled. Um, is there anything else you want to add here? No. Uh, <laughs> I hope <laughs> that Clustered and all the things I'm doing with Rockwood Life helps people. And if there's you know, anything else I can do to help, I hope people feel that they can approach me. And my DMs are always open, and I'm always happy to help anybody, no matter what their problem is. So please don't hesitate. That's awesome. I will definitely put links um, in the show notes to um, all of your fantastic shows. And I do really uh, encourage people to check them out. Um, the great thing about something like Raw Code Live, right, is that there's a whole bunch of episodes about different tools and you could just like go and look for the tools that you're interested in and, and watch those over 150 now in one year. Wow. And clustered really is a blast. I'm, I'm kind of terrified about con, but I love watching it. No, we have to do that. Come on. (laughs) has to happen. We'll do it together. Someday. Um, uh, you're, uh, at rock code on Twitter, R A W K O D E. And um, like I said, I'll, I'll put those links in the show notes. Do you have anything else coming up that you want to mention? I don't think so. <laughs> right, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Cube Cuddle is created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo, 
You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Montplacer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening.